This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If you're 21 years old and use nicotine or tobacco, I'm here to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's redefining tradition for millions of adult consumers. So if you're over 21, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Ida Rodriguez says when she does stand-up, she doesn't want you to forget her jokes right after you hear them. There's always something deeper in her humor. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, she talks about creating comedy out of her own experiences of racism and violence as an Afro-Latina. Ida, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Where are you? Are you in New York or where are you? I'm in L.A. Are you? Okay. Okay. Why did I think you were from New York? Did I make that up? No, I I grew up between New York and Miami, and I'm a New York comic. So before COVID, I would be in New York every month working there. I was by coastal So everyone believes me to be a New Yorker. And, and, and you, you have the good New York accent, which uh, which also marks you as a New Yorker, too. So I appreciate it. My parents met in New York, and I lived in New York for a number of years. So I smile when I, when I, when I say you, uh, you're a New Yorker. Um, yeah, where in Miami did you spend time? Because I grew up in Miami. So I went to, I grew up in the, the central part of Miami. I went to Jackson High School. So I grew up in a, in the community of Alapata, I guess is what it's called. Where are you from in Miami? I'm from all the way down in Homestead. Do you know where Homestead is? Yeah, my, my family lives there now. So my sister lives in okay. Homestead. She just bought a house there. Yeah, they don't, they don't want to go anywhere near the city. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy how much things uh, things have, uh, have changed. When I grew up, Homestead was like the backwater. <laughs> Nobody was trying to go down there, but uh, but we were down there. And uh, and so uh, it is what it is. Um, how long have you been in L.A.? How long has L.A. been home? Um, well, it's been a while. 15 years now, maybe. Yeah. They tell me that I'm now a Californian, but no, I'm not. You're not? No, I'm not. And, and, and why do you say why do you say no? I think I know why you say no, but why do you say no? I'm just nothing uh, against California. I mean, I don't like kale. But um, other than that, <laughs> I 
love that you're running on the anti-kale ticket. I love that. <laughs> I like spinach, but I don't like kale. But I, uh, I just, it just, I don't feel like I'm from here. I still feel like I'm from back home, from back east. It just sticks on, it sticks with you. Where are you now? Where are you located right now? I'm up in the Bay Area. Do you know what, you know the Bay Area at all? Yeah, absolutely. My daughter went to UC Davis. Oh my goodness. So you were driving up here a little bit or flying up here probably, but but maybe driving too. Yeah, I did both. I'm in a little place called Mountain View. Have you ever been to Mountain View before? No, but I heard of it. Um, That is near, San Francisco? It is. So it's, you know where you may have heard of it? You've heard of the Shoreline before. Sometimes we have comedy shows at the Shoreline. And so maybe you heard of the Shoreline here. They've got a big kind of amphitheater here. And uh, it's it's right in between San Francisco and San Jose. Right. So it's, uh, right, right. it's a good spot. It's a good spot. I love the Bay. Yeah, I love the Bay. It's, uh, um, it's colorful. Um, I think there's something good about the fact that new things start here and that people are seeing crazy ideas take off and become Airbnb or Tesla or what have you. It kind of keeps the mind a little bit open maybe. So uh, so I enjoy it. Did, did you ever live up here at any point or no? I haven't, but I, I spend time there. I mean, that's one of my favorite places to perform. I love San Francisco. The, the audiences are... You know, it's like I, I was telling someone when I started doing stand up, I used to do a lot of jokes about science because I love science. And in L.A., they'd be shocked that I have a joke about science. In San Francisco, they would just listen to the joke was over and laugh. And I just appreciate <laughs> the, the audiences because they don't they're not shocked when a person of color knows how to read. <laughs> Whereas here, you know. It feels like in LA, like they're like, oh, and she can read too, you know? So it just, there's a whole different vibe there. And um, and I love the food. What kind of food do you love here? What, what have you tried up here? So I'm a, first of all, I'm a pescatarian. So the, the, the seafood scene there is far superior. I think LA, the food scene is about ambiance and, you know, celebrity. Whereas in San Francisco, they have really good restaurants. Um, I love Crustacean. That's one of my favorite restaurants. But I like that the one in San Francisco better than the one here. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and when you come to San Francisco, where do you perform? Which of which one of the clubs you perform at? Do you know? Yeah, I, I go between the cop between the San Francisco Punchline and Cobbs. Those are my two clubs in San Francisco. And do you ever come down to Sunnyvale, uh, a little place called Sunnyvale, and do Rooster Tea Feathers? Have you ever have they ever had you come down and do that? I was booked there for uh, the beginning of August, and because of COVID, I wasn't able to do it. But I was coming there. Yeah, the the weekend of August thirteenth. Yeah, I, uh, I I love comedy. I love comedians. The, th- the thing I admire most about comedians is how you deal with hecklers. Were you good with hecklers from the very beginning? Absolutely, I had to be because uh, because they always come from me. Um, you know, people think that I'm not going to be funny or that I'm not a good comic, so I'm always going to get the heckler, and then I have to put them in their place, and then we can you know proceed with the show. Um, they love to heckle women, and especially women that don't fit the aesthetic of what they think a comedian is supposed to look like. They will they will come for you, and if you're in any way scared, they will destroy you. So you have to be ready for them. And wait, and now who are the hecklers normally for you? Are they men? Are they older? Are they younger? Are they always white? Like who are the hecklers? Usually older white men, 
And uh, sometimes white women, um, but white women heckle everybody though. The, the Karen syndrome, as they say, in comedy, they heckle everyone. And sometimes they're not heckling for the same reasons that the men do. They're correcting you if you're saying something that is inappropriate or they don't like it. Or a white woman will say, uh, uh, I don't think it's okay for you to say, like they will say that. But the older white men who to them comedy is Johnny Carson and Rodney Dangerfield, they're the ones that are like, you know, let me see what you got. Like they'll say, just, but I mean, when people get drunk, they get ridiculous. What's the wildest thing that ever happened to you while you were on stage? Um, the wildest thing that ever happened to me when I was on stage, um, a man rushed my stage so that he could propose to his fiance <laughs> without warning. What, what did you think was happening? I thought he was coming to do something to me. So I just like ran and, but he, you know, he just felt that he could, he could interrupt my show because he just felt entitled to. And then I just let him propose. I felt sorry for the woman. Cause I was like, that's the kind of man you're going to marry. Like, good luck. <laughs> what did you say? Did you say anything to them or what'd you do? Yeah. You know, everybody was laughing at my reaction because they were like, Oh, she didn't know, because I didn't. And um, I just was making faces. And then when he finished proposing, I was like, I grabbed the microphone and I was like, am I allowed to get my microphone back? And, uh, and, and then, you know, he laughed and gave it to me. And, you know, I, I was like, congratulations, I guess. You know, I was like, you sure you want to do this, girl? Like, <laughs> I mean, he could have gotten arrested, but he didn't feel like he would. Wait, now, were you funny out of the gate? Like, as a kid, if I'd met you uh, uh, when you were young, were you funny? Yeah, I think my friends would always say that I was funny, but no one would imagine that I would be a comedian. They just, because, you know, usually the, the person that's funny in your group is just the funny person in your group, but they don't, they don't normally think that a girl is going to grow up to be a stand-up comedian. Um, so... Here we are. Now they're like, uh, it fits. It fits. It definitely fits. <laughs> Wait, so now how does it happen? I don't, now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever asked anybody, like, how do you become a comedian? Like, do you plan it and you're always thinking, I'm going to become a comedian? Or like, how does that work? You know, I think that a lot of times there are the two groups. There are the people who always wanted to be stand-up comedians. And then there are the people who thought about it and are afraid of it because they're scared of public speaking. There is definitely a process, right, that some people don't think that they have to go through, but it is imperative for you to be a comedian that's a real comedian, understanding how to write a joke, um, you know, building a set. Uh, and you start by the open mic process and start, you know, you start going out and, you know, feeling your legs on stage and understanding that just because you're funny to your friends doesn't mean, because it's easy to be funny to a group of people who think like you, right? Who come from the same place or work in the same place. But when you have to go out in front of an audience where you are speaking to hundreds of people that all come from different walks of life and you want them all to meet you at a joke, there requires uh, some level of skill. So comedy is an art form, but it's also a science because technically you need to know how to assemble a joke, 
assemble a set, a premise. There's a science to that. But the art form, you know, entails being a appealing to people who don't look like you or think like you. And that, that takes time to really be able to. That's why you see some people that get trapped in certain circles, like whatever maybe the ethnic circle of, of whatever group they belong to or, uh, you know, snobs or say the, the lower third comics, the people who stay in a specific area. It's very easy to do that if you're not working the craft because it's not just about making people laugh. That the laughing part is the easy part because a clown can make you laugh. You have to make people think and remember, you know, because the greatest comedians are the ones you go home and tell your friends about and quote their jokes. That is so interesting. So, so how do you work your craft? Like, how did you, once you realized that it wasn't just about standing on stage, I appreciate what you're saying. I think I, I think I appreciate and understand the point you're making. So how did you work it? Was it literally just more reps, just doing as much as you could? Was it training almost like a baseball player or a singer trains? Like, how did you go about, you know, really honing that, that, that craft? I have a process. So... For example, like my Netflix special that I just did, that was that was a there was a theme to that. So for me, it was writing around the theme, and I write my premises. Like I have my joke books all over the place. I have premises that I want to develop for my sets. Like there are things that I want to talk about. Um, for example, I am taking on cancel culture in my next special for HBO Max, which I'm getting ready to do. That is the the object of my desire. Is like, how do I dismantle this from a place that doesn't feel um, partisan, doesn't feel biased. It just feel it's just about the comedy. Like trying to get back to what comedy used to be, which was making fun of everybody, right? But now it's become something that's weaponized against other people, and you can't just you can't even explore nuance anymore because you you are either a Red Sox or a Yankee. So for me, the way I approach comedy is I sit down and I think about the concepts that I want to conquer and the, the, the messaging that I want to send out. And then I write the jokes around that. Because to me, like hollow jokes that make people laugh for 15 seconds that you forget, that's not, that doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't, my brand of humor doesn't um, support that. So for me, it, if it's not... If it doesn't make you think in some way, if it doesn't trigger you, then for me, the joke is empty. And so I have to start with the premise. And then the punchline is, I can come up with 10 punchlines for one premise, but the premise has to be solid. You know, it has, I have to be talking about something. Who, who, um, who in your mind is, is another great craftswoman or craftsman? when it comes to this kind of comedy you're talking about? Like who, because I know writers have, and sometimes say this is a writer's writer, or someone say this is a musician's musician, or you know what I mean? And so for you as someone who's in it and who might recognize something that I may not just sitting in the audience and join it, like who is a master and you're like, that's some magic that's happening up there. So, I mean, I, I would say that Richard Pryor and George Carlin were the the masters of, of that in terms of where, how I feel about comedy. And what I'm about to say may be very controversial, but it's very evident. And when you ask an average person who their favorite comedians are, they still list George Carlin 
and Richard Pryor, which means that those of us who are still here on the ground have really big shoes to fill when people still list comedians from the 70s as the greatest comics of all time, right? Um, but I like to watch uh, Bill Burr. I think he is, uh, he's really funny and he has something to say. And, and, and Dave Chappelle is undeniable because Dave Chappelle is one of the, you know, he's one of our better comics of this time. I think that he is very thoughtful about what he has to say and he enjoys being thought provoking because his comedy has so many layers where everybody can enjoy a Dave Chappelle joke, which I think is very uh, genius. Like the, the person who works at a towel mill that didn't graduate from high school can enjoy Dave Chappelle as well as somebody who went to MIT. And there's something special and specific about that because, you know, when you think about comedy and how it's segregated, like the blue collar workers or the blue collar comics are sp speaking to a specific group of people. And there are people that are like, take it. They're like, that's not my, my kind of thing or someone like Patton Oswalt, who's a little more heady, or Louis Black, who approaches things from a social, political perspective, but that is a specific brand of humor where I think someone like Dave Chappelle is like, can talk to all of those people's audiences. And I don't know that many comedic minds that, that can actually do that. You know, I'm struck by the fact that you didn't put your boy Chris Rock in there. Why not? You know, um, I think Chris Rock was one of the greater comics of, of a certain time. But I think he's gotten really safe in the in the new day. A lot of people are scared. Comedy has, um, not just comedy, but the, the whole idea of being canceled, you know, your, uh, your, your finances being affected, your livelihood, which is, it, 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 those things can happen now. Like if you say the wrong thing, you can be done and somebody won't book you. They don't want to work with you. Your shows get canceled. And I think that, you know, I remember, I think Chris Rock, had, it felt like a politically affiliated. I never thought of him as like a Democrat or a Republican. He, he felt like a libertarian to me. And that happens to a lot of people once, once they, you know, change tax brackets, their politics change because their bottom dollar has changed. And so when I think about Chris Rock's comedy, the evolution of it, I just, he was so much more impactful when he was hungry. And it was the, the desire to ascend where the thing about Chris Rock versus someone like Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle is only a comedian. Dave Chappelle doesn't want to be an actor. He doesn't want to be a movie star. He just wants to do comedy. So he's not beholden to all these different institutions. He can just go do his own comedy. He can videotape it, put it on YouTube, and millions of people are going to watch it because he doesn't belong to any of the, the machines. But Chris Rock is an actor. He's a director. He's on television, you know, and I think that that's affected his comedy. They, do comedians talk about that? Like, do they say, because I know rappers do, I know rappers will say, so-and-so has gone mainstream, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and they literally use some of the same language you're using. They say they're not hungry anymore. They say they belong to a certain set of institutions. So do comedians, is this, is this a common conversation among comedians? Absolutely. Um, and you know, the thing about like Chris Rock is, is on our Mount Rushmore. We love Chris Rock. His evolution from, com from uh, in comedy has been always brilliant. When he did 
um, I think bigger and blacker. When he did the joke, the respect respectability politics joke about the difference between a black person and an N-word, and then he he suffered for saying that because it was, you know, it, it was, I guess, perpetuating some of the, the principles of white supremacy when it comes to the, you know, the way black people are are perceived in this country. He came back later and then he addressed that. And I think that's what a good artist does. You see the evolution, you see him um, going back from, you know, addressing what, what was problematic and then making another joke about it and building on it. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel like Chris Rock is a dud, I, but I definitely, and, and just imagine his last comedy special came out. He did a joke about uh, black people and guns and the NRA. And that day the Parkland shooting took place. So then he started getting all of this backlash for the joke that he wrote a year before this whole thing even happened that he didn't even know was going to happen. So he, you know, I would be affected too. I mean, I, I've never um, been on that national stage at that level where everything I say is being weighted. And I think that that's very, that's a lot. Ada, is that how you pronounce your name? How do you pronounce your name? Ida. Ida. Ida, what 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 does your mom call you? What what do, what does your family call you? Aidita. 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 Were you named after anyone? Oh man, I was named after both of my grandmothers. Both of my grandmothers are named Ida. They're from two different countries, and they have the same exact name. Which two countries? Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Oh, so you've seen some interesting, different racial paradigms in your life, then? Yeah, absolutely. Understanding the difference between race and nationality is probably one of the biggest uh, dynamics of being Caribbean, being Latin, Caribbean, and Black, Latin, Caribbean, and Indigenous. You know, like understanding the difference between race and nationality is probably one of the biggest journeys that we have in this country because in our country, uh, our countries, um, we have the same racial dynamics, but in a third world country, when people are so busy trying to survive, they don't have time to focus on it. Like here, where it's like front and center all the time. And, and so how did you grow up associating? How did you see your own identity? I was raised to be Afro-Latina. So my family is, uh, my, I grew up with my Puerto Rican side of the family where there's a, uh, everyone falls somewhere on this spectrum of color. And my mother was the fair one, my uncle was the dark-skinned one, and everybody else was somewhere in between. We were told we were Black people who spoke Spanish. We were just told that we're, as what they call themselves now, Afro-Latinos. But our whole life was, uh, it was easier to tell everybody you're just this than to divide everybody into these things for the survival because of my grandmother's reality. Because my grandmother was a black woman and when she came to America, she came right into the civil rights movement. So even if in any other place and time, she would be told that she's not black because she's Puerto Rican, in America during that time, if you were not white, you were black. And so to make life easier for all of us, and to give us some perspective on what how we would be treated in this country, it was just easier to tell us, this is what you are. 
as opposed to, um, you know, the things that we talk about now, which is, are you appropriating black culture? Do you, uh, what makes you black? You're not black based on your texture of hair or your complexion, which exists in the Latin sector, but doesn't exist in black America because Viola Davis is black and so is Rashida Jones. But only within the Latin spectrum do those things become debatable because we don't have we don't have real uh, we don't have those types of conversations in our own country. And blackness exists all over the world. It's not just exclusive to America. You know, the Caribbean reality is those are descendants of slaves as well. They are just some are Dutch slaves, some are Spanish slaves, some are British slaves, nonetheless. So it's just a very complicated uh, reality to have being in America, being at the intersection of I'm Caribbean, I am Black, I am Indigenous, and I am uh, Puerto Rican. So for me, I am at the intersection of Blackness, I'm intersect in the intersection of Latinidad, as well as um, the intersection of, you know, Caribbeanness. And so I have a lot more in common with someone that's from Jamaica in terms of food, music, and culture than I do with someone from El Salvador. But, but the person from El Salvador and I both speak Spanish and the person from Jamaica speaks Patois and I speak Spanish. So it's just, it's like this, we are in this place where all of it collided and it's so complicated to have. Um, even with my own kids who are like, you're not black to us because they're American. And to them, I'm not a black person, but I'm not a white person either. So it's a very, it's a very, um, I, don't, I don't know. It's just gotten so complex. And the, and the more, uh, as time goes by, the, the more complicated it gets because we start now, now we're dividing ourselves with, within so many groups, you know, and my, um, my daughter just saw my birth certificate the other day. It didn't have a race. They didn't put anything. There was no W, no B. And she was like in, in awe of that because they didn't even know what to classify me when I was born because I'm not white to them and then I'm not black to them. So we have to define who we are. And it's just, you know, it all feeds the divide and conquer. What has it done to you as a person to be at that many different crossroads? As, did it... Did it hold you back? Did it empower you? Did it make you able to have all these conversations with different kinds of people because you had different points of, of connection with them? What, what did it do to you as a human being? It actually, I think it empowers me. Um, I think that I'm a, a creature that loves to learn. And so it, it allowed me to go and really tr start to research my history beyond slavery you know, beyond the history that they gave us, because only, you know, it's a, it's interesting how people of color have been made to feel ashamed of their ancestors when they come from such greatness. I mean, even to come from slaves and to still be here is such an accomplishment and speaks to the, the power of where we come from. But beyond that, you know, like you, you hear um, in Latin America, it is an insult to call someone an Indian. To say Indian or indigenous 
to some people is an insult. And it's like amazing that you would you would use that to classify someone to insult them when those are the great people, your, the great ancestors of your past, pre-colonization. And it's all part of the systemic ills of white supremacy and indoctrinating of people so that you can control them if you get them to hate themselves. But for me, I was like, there's more to this. You know, where I come from is powerful and it's strong and we're still standing. And so there's got to be something to that for me to still be here instead of me feeling like, you know, a, a victim or feeling like I don't I don't know my place. I do know my place, but I won't let you classify me because what you've done with your classification has been harmful to my people. And that's that's not how it goes. So, yeah, I, I think there's been there's been confusion along the way. There's been, you know, feeling ostracized, not knowing where I belong and sometimes. But I still feel um that even some of the people that try to ostracize me, I know their history and mine combined, and they don't even know their own. How, how do you find your reception from other Black people? It depends. Um, there are some people who I know who automatically assume that I'm Black, right? They don't, they, because where they come from, you're either white or Black. So I have friends that grew up in Alabama when I was in college, and I would say I'm Puerto Rican, and they'd be like, yeah, you just, you know, you a black person with some beans, like my friend Sybil would say, because she was like, she would, she would say, you can't come to Alabama with that mess, because you know, she was like, you either white or you black. There ain't no, you know, Mexican. We don't even know what that is. Um, and then the people who, you know, and you feel it now because there's so many. There's even division amongst black people in America and black people from Africa. Like the the people who considered themselves, you know, the groups like the ADOS who don't want anything to do with people from Africa because they they consider them immigrants and they don't consider them foundational black people or the people from America. You know, you I I find that um, if you allow yourself and which which is what I had to stop doing is allowing other people to define me. I just had to. Um, just arrive at my own decisions and my own conclusion because where I've arrived about who I am is based on me, knowledge of self and history and information and science. And a lot of people trying to classify me, that comes from their own pain, their own rhetoric, their own, um, you know, anger about white supremacy. And so what we do a lot of times as people is that we start pointing our finger at each other and don't point our fig finger at the culprit, right? And so we start saying, well, you're not black, you're darker than a brown paper bag, so you don't know my struggle. You know, you demonize a light-skinned person because they have privilege. You demonize a dark-skinned person because they beat you up when you were younger. And the reality of it is, is that it's all just a result of the same thing. And instead of looking at each other, we should be looking at the problem so we can fix it. And the problem is not us. We are just a result of the problem. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. 
We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Ida, what would you have done if you hadn't become a professional comic? I'd be, probably be a teacher. Um, I would I would work with children. Um, I like children better than I like adults. Um, and I think that, um, yes, I would love to work with school-aged children because I think in those foundational years when they need to be filled with self-esteem and they need to be, um, you know, their subconscious minds need to be programmed for positivity and progress. Um, we have a big responsibility to them. So I would dedicate myself to working with children in marginalized communities, younger kids. Ida, how do you think about this life, the life that you've led? Uh, is it one that you, that you've, uh, I, I don't even want to put words on it. I want to leave it a little open-ended and ambiguous because I'd want to hear what you think, but how do you think about this life that you've led? You know, it's been, um, while I was in some of my darkest times, I questioned my existence. I questioned my um, purpose. And I also questioned the divine because I would be like, why, why are these things happening to me? Um, when, the, when the tide turned for me and things started to change and progress started to be mine um, through my own independence because I've had seasons of, you know, a life that some people would consider a charmed life. I was married to a professional athlete. I lived a life of, you know, abundance at one point. And, and then, you know, I was homeless. I think that what I will say is what where I am now in terms of my own evolution, my spiritual revolution, and my emotional revolution, is that all a lot of the things that I ha- that happened to me, being um, where I come from, were directed by shame and guilt, and um, and a lot of times people of color are driven by those things, and for me where I am now and what I've done with my comedy and my writing, I feel like the purpose is now becoming more evident as to using my journey and the things that happened to me to release 
a lot of people from guilt and shame. And so um, I talked about sexual being sexually assaulted. I talked about being kidnapped uh, by family members. I talked about domestic violence. Those are a lot of things that happen in our communities that are swept under the rug because they, they breed shame and guilt. And I can't tell you how many people reached out to me after to say thank you because you give it a face, you give it a name, and you also uh, appear to be on the other side of it. I have um, optimism now about my situation and about being able to heal. So my journey has been what it's been. Um, There are no victims here. Just victors is how I see it. And victims are the people who cannot walk away from the situation. And so I just feel that a lot of the things that have happened in my journey are, are for the collective, because that's how I feel. I'm a village person. Um, as they say in, in Swahili, I'm a Tavudi person. So for me, it's about the collective. And if at some point what happened to me is going to help the community, then so be it, because it can't it can't just be about me. That's not that's not why we're on this planet. You know, we are here to be of service to one another. We are here to make life better for each other. We are here to grow as a as a group. And and that is how you have progress and prosperity. And no matter how much you want to push individualism, nobody has achieved ultimate success on their own. So. I just feel like those things that happened to me happened to me so that I could be of service to others. And I wouldn't have it any other way because I was raised by a group of people that other people would look down on, would perceive to be derelicts or undesirables because those people come from a lower income reality. But I am everything I am because those people loved me and I'm very thankful for them. Are there things that have allowed you to heal that you would share with other people that have that have made a difference, Ida. I mean, I mean, as as you said, it's clear to me that you haven't always had the easiest life. But I also I hear when I hear you talk, I hear a level of profound self reflection of wisdom. I feel like you've synthesized a lot of different things, not only your own story but history of larger forces. And I, I'm part of me is wondering what's allowed you to do that. Because, you know, there's no doubt, even just in the little bit that you've shared, that it hasn't been easy, that, that you have had to do some healing along the way. You know, um, being um, gen- generational curse breakers, um, looking back at my mother's life and my grandmother's life, understanding at a very young age that the things that happened to them were rooted in deep trauma, and that a lot of the things that I experienced in life were a result of that, driven by fear and driven by guilt and shame, as I said. Um, I just thought it was uh, important. So I I had a teacher in the third grade, her name was Mrs. Flanagan. And Mrs. Flanagan um, would always tell me, you wanna get out of this? Read your way out. And I was in third grade, so I was, I was eight years old. She said, read your way out. And I believe that I accepted that as a truth. 
And, you know, I remember reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle at that age. And that was like a traumatic book to read when you're a kid about kids being um, abused during the Great Depression. But it was just, it was, um, it, it became a tool for me to survive and to win. So a lot of times when I didn't have the tools at home, because my family didn't have the tools because of lack of education, economics, and reality, I would turn to books. And that is how I started working on healing, understanding um, you know, things from a foundational perspective, understanding why my mom would do the things that she did, um, why you know, we lived where we lived, you know, those kinds of things. And those things for me provided healing. And as I, as I, even as a mom, I just learned that I didn't, I couldn't do it the way my mother did it. And I didn't have the tools because I didn't inherit those tools. So I started turning to the books and saying, you know, all of this, somebody might call me a quack or they'll say, you could, you, you know, you're, you, you're gonna pull out a book with your kids. Yeah, because like, I didn't want to beat my daughter. I didn't, I didn't want to condition my daughter uh, through physical force. Like I didn't want her to become, to accept as the truth that when you do something wrong, you deserve a lashing because, you know, historically that comes from slavery, but it also supports domestic violence. So I know that my mom used to beat us, you know, that was just how she was taught. But I felt like if I was to evolve and be the better version of that, then it was my responsibility to get the information so that that could be. So there's no difference about becoming, you know, codependent in relationships or um, not being able to speak up for yourself or confronting situations without violence. So I had to go to the books for some of those things because they were not in the wheelhouse that I was raised in, you know, of the, of the people that I was raised in. And if I knew better, then I should do better. And I was finding a way to, to heal. I couldn't go to therapy. So reading books about psychology and understanding the way the mind works and where some of those issues stem from. It, it's always been the way that I see my way through because that lady told me that the way out of my circumstances was to read it. And both of my children will always roll their eyes and be like, yeah, we know readers are leaders because I used to tell them that when they were young. But it's just important that all the information is there. You just got to look for it. What are one or two or two or three of your favorite books? Um, yes. The Power of Your Subconscious Mind is a book that I love. Um, that broke chains for me. Understanding um, subconscious mind programming and understanding having the tools. It helped me also learn Spirit, it, it, it helped me with spiritual stuff because like the stuff that's in the Bible or in the Torah, the Tanakh, the Quran, they're all speaking universal laws. And a lot of it has to do with how you, you perceive things and what you program your mind and your mouth to do. But it gave me a more scientific approach to it. So that book is one of them. Um, the Alchemist is a book that I like to read. It doesn't hit me as profoundly as it hits other people. I know it's cool to say The Alchemist. I read a book called Confederacy of Dunces, and that book I love, Peter O'Toole, I think is one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. But it, it was just, 
you know, besides it being funny, it's a mockery of the education system in America and how people value themselves to be better based on the education that they have and how it really is nonsense. That book is a book that I love to read. And then Toni Morrison, Sula, um, is a book that I read several times in my life and it meant something different every time I read it. But it was about ultimate womanhood and I just feel like she's, she was such a brilliant writer um, and really understanding the journey of womanhood, which you know, it's okay to, to study. We don't have to erase our womanness to demand equality. And I think that a lot of times those things get conflated. And that book is one of those books that reinforces womanhood for me. Tell me what you've learned about love, Ida. What have you learned about love? So what I've learned about love is so interesting that you would ask me that in this season in my life is that a lot of us don't really know what love is. A lot of us think um, that companionship or attention is someone loving us. And love, it doesn't have um, the boundaries that we like to give it, just like God. Like a lot of us like to say that God, we, we created God in our image instead of God creating us in God's image, right? Because we like to call him a man. You know, when we see some pictures of Jesus, he looks like he's from Greece. You know, like it's, we, we've created this idea of what God is as well as love because I think they're synonymous and I think that they are unconditional and pure and, um, and we pollute it with what, what, it is, what it is that we need at the time. So for me in the journey of what love is, understanding that I'm incapable of it until I learn to not just love, but accept myself, who I have to live with every day. And if I can't exercise it with me, there's no way I can exercise it with others. And so in turn, I can't receive it from someone who doesn't love themselves. So understanding what love really is and being able to identify how toxic it could be, even with people who are supposed to love you, like family members, and understanding that they may not even be capable because they never learned what love is. I've learned that um, love is also um, love, regardless of what name we want to give it and how we want to give it. And when we understand and, re and really accept what it can really be in our lives, it makes us have to deal with ourselves and understand that a lot of the things that we've engaged in that haven't been good for us were probably never love in the first place. Do you find yourself attracted to different people in a different way romantically than you once did as you've gone through this journey of, uh, of womanhood? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but the one thing has always remained the same, right? My friends who, who can, my crazy friends who some of our, some can be superficial and some can be silly will say, when, if you ask the group, who would date the ugly guy? They will point at me, right? Because I, <laughs> I've never been superficial in that way. What, I've, what, I, what I'm attracted to is the mind, right? Like I am really attracted to smart, intelligent people. And so where that, when that falls, when that doesn't, is not there, everything else falls flat. You can be an Adonis, but if I can't have a conversation with you, 
then I, it probably is not going to happen because I I have to be stimulated. Uh, I have to be able to have a conversation. You know, I'm a very conversational person. Um, I like to read. I like to I like to explore. And so for me, um, yes. And and what I didn't where it's changed for me as I've gotten older and I've matured is not that that's changed, but the reality that I can have it and the understanding that it exists for me is what's changed. Whereas before I thought that I would just have to settle for, you know, the 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 hot guy who likes me because he every because that's probably as good as it's gonna get. Whereas now I understand. And it's it's funny because it works in the reverse for women as they get older, they start settling more and thinking, I, I, I'm gonna just have to take what I can get. He's breathing and he got a job, you know? And for me, I don't feel that way because I'm breathing and I have a job. So I feel like I I wanna be involved with someone who's a reflection of me and, um, and, and, and sees life in a way similar to mine, you know, to make the journey enjoyable. I uh, uh, I like that. I I, uh, I hope that's true, and, uh, and 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 I like that you're breathing and having jobs. That makes me uh, that makes me smile. Uh, let's talk about one of your girls who's breathing and has a job. Now, do I understand that Tiffany Haddish and you are good friends? We are really good friends. Absolutely. I just I was just with her on Monday and Tuesday. I was in Texas with her. We are good friends. We are we are friends, and we were friends. Um, from the beginning of my journey, and we became friends, not just colleagues. And we would be friends if I quit comedy tomorrow or if she quit comedy tomorrow. We have a real friendship. How did, how did you guys meet? And, and what have you learned and seen her rise? Like, what, what can you tell us as someone who's been able to see someone you love kind of take off and be celebrated in that way? So we met um, at an audition for the CBS uh, Diversity Showcase. And I'm, uh, she approached me and she said, I know who you are. I've heard about you. And, and it was funny because I was like, oh, really? And she was like, yeah. And then we had a conversation and she said, we're going to be friends. And, and that's it. And we've been friends ever since. You know, um, it's hard to watch uh, someone that you love ascend that way because you feel threatened that. So people would, people would think that I would feel threatened because it's not happening for me, but that wasn't what I was threatened by. I had jealousy issues with her because she had a whole new group of friends and it was, um, it was really hard to watch because I felt like I was gonna lose her to it because I wasn't as famous, you know. I remember watching a video of her making collard greens with Taylor Swift and I was angry. I was like, yeah, she don't know nothing about no collard greens. She was making some collard greens with Taylor Swift. She ain't never had some greens a day in her life. What is this about? This is foolishness. And, and it's true, it's just, I was like, wow, like I've lost my friend, I haven't heard from her. I had no concept of what, how that works, you know, to go from one day thinking, I don't know what I'm gonna do for a job, to the next day, Variety calling you the funniest person on the planet. And everybody's talking about you. And so what I learned is that as people ascend, you know, 
they, do, they don't stop being people. And um, her journey came with a lot of pressure and a lot of, I mean, Tiffany came to see me perform in New York. She came to a show with me. There were six people in the audience. And the next day we ended up in page six. So it was, it's like her, her life is always under a microscope. And, you know, it just made me reassess um, what I want in this journey. Like, what am I looking for? What do I, what I, what do I really want as the human being that I am and how I operate in this space? It made me reevaluate and sit down and really think about what it is that I'm gunning for in Hollywood, because sometimes what, what you think you want may not be the best thing for you or what you really want. And so watching her gave me a really a sense for that because that's her journey. And that was, that's what's been designed for her. Um, but I just, I just looked at it and I was like, wow, I don't, I don't know if I want to walk about the earth um, without my privacy. What, 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 what do you think you want? What, what are what are your dreams today? My dreams are um, creating um, a world, um, and when I say world, I mean like my own studio, um, so my village, and it would operate that way, an intergenerational village of people that collectively work to distribute art. Um, tell stories of us within and give a, give our stories a spectrum where you can see all aspects of us, not the same ones that they perpetuate on media in media. Um, it would be, you know, creating, um, you know, when I think about careers that I like and people that do what I what I aspire to do and have started to do. I think of people like uh, Issa Rae, Mindy Kalin. Donald Glover, uh, Tina Fey, you know, they create TV shows for other people. They don't have to be the ones in front of the camera all the time. I want to be an employer. Um, I want to create, you know, uh, I want to bring in the young ideology and marry it to the older ideology because I think they're both necessary. Um, we've, we, there's so many, so much division now that even between the generations, all oh, the millennials, the Gen Z, I think it's all necessary for a healthy ecosystem. So for me, what it looks like is creating that Tavuti, that village um, where there's art that I want people to see stories of people of color and be like, huh, I didn't know that. Um, instead of the same stories that I'm being told over and over again. I mean, and, and it happens to everybody. Like you see Eastern European people on television and they're the criminal, they're the human trafficker, they're the drug, you know, then you see, it's like the only people who get to be the whole spectrum are white American people. They get to be the doctors, the good father, the lawyer. But then you see the Armenian, he has on a jacket and a cigarette and he's going to steal something. And it's just, or you see the black guy or the Puerto Rican guy who's in a gang and so for me, it's just to balance that out by creating a world um, of, you know, people who are human beings who happen to be people of color, as opposed to leading with, this is what Black people do. The Puerto Ricans, they don't raise their children, you know? Um, and so for me, that, that's the dream. The dream is to, I want to direct, I want to write, I want to produce, I want to act, I want to do jokes. 
And I want to be able to take a break from being in front of the camera and go create another star. You know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's lovely being Tiffany Haddish, but it would be great to be to find the next Tiffany Haddish and usher them into the light, you know? Um, and for me, that's what it's always been about. Do, do the two of you ever talk about that and how she could help you continue on your ascent? So, yeah, you know, what's funny is that... Um, I have a TV show deal with HBO Max that I so I uh, I sold my show two two or three days after I taped my special, the special that she produced for me. And um, a few months later, when she found out about the show, she said, "I wanted to be I wanted to create a show with you that you acted in because I want to be a part of that journey for you." And so, because she threw the rope to me to give me the comedy special. I went to HBO Max and I said, I want you to add Tiffany as an executive producer to my show. And, um, you know, it took a bit, it took a, a bit of finessing, but we did it. And I was able to reciprocate, you know, what she did for me um, and put her in a space, in a place where she's now producing a scripted television show. Cause she had not until my show. And, um, and she's always, I have an animated, I have a deal for an animated series. And she called me and she said, if you need me to get on this to help, I will. Like she always tells me whatever I can do to help you go to the next level, um, I will do it. And, um, and I, luckily I haven't had to call on her for it. I've been enough to be able to do it on my own, but it feels good to know that I have that support from her. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. 
LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Ida, what do you tell people who, I bet you a lot of people come to you asking for advice about dreaming fearlessly, about not just dreaming, but breaking through and making things happen. Like, like when you really go there, not the platitudes, not the things everyone thinks you're supposed to say, but like when you really go there and you really see in someone's eyes that they want it, that they're hungry, and you're really trying to help them, what, what are the two or three things that you tell them about dreaming fearlessly and about breaking through? So one of them comes from the outsiders. Um, stay gold, pony boy, stay gold, right? I always tell people, go is you, because you are eventually going to show up anyway. The people who are most successful in life and whatever field it is are the people who are most co- comfortable being their authentic selves. And the essence of who you are cannot be changed, so you might as well embrace it. So I'm always, especially with women who become comedians, I always tell them that because a lot of times newer comedians are doing their greatest impression of what they think a comedian is supposed to be. And they take on a persona and a wardrobe and behaviors of what they think because that's what Richard Pryor did. But Richard Pryor was being Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was not doing a persona. He was being his authentic self. So I always like to tell people to, to, you know, when you work from the inside out, you win. When you work from the outside in, you don't win because you don't know what winning is because winning is always what other people are telling you winning is. Um, So I believe in being authentic. And I also believe in exalting the people around you who don't have the opportunities and, uh, and the weight. So for me, you know, it's always about my village, my community, my grandmother, my uncle, my mom, my brothers and my sisters. We are not an island. And the the industry, capitalism, Hollywood, will always convince you into believing that you are an island when when you are of service to them. You did this yourself. It was all you when you make it. And then when they're done with you and they toss you away, you don't have a village to go back to because you've alienated them in your pursuits of what these people are telling you you should be, you know, you should accomplish. So I always tell people to take, don't forget the village, you know, take note of what's real and what's around you on the ground, because that's where you end back up when, when they're done with you. So those are the two things that I always tell people, be true to yourself and I think if you're going to be an awful person, if you're going to be a dark person, if you're going to be shady, let that just be who you are. Be, let that be because you are being your most authentic self and not because you've conv- people have convinced you that that's what you have to be to be successful. Because I believe in balance and I believe in the light. And I believe that if you operate from the light, you will always win, regardless of what they tell you. And, and what do you say to people who say, I feel like change is always happening to me and I want to become a change agent. I want to be making the change, but I feel trapped. I feel stuck. I don't know how to go from it happening to me 
to being the author of that change. What do you say to them? Well, um, I'll say to people who do that is, first of all, stop the victim talk. Um, When people who say that everything is always happening to them, they tend to have a problem with accountability and, and introspection. They have a problem with understanding how they, what role they play in this. And so balanced human beings are able to say, this happened to me, I happened to this. I was part, I participated in this. I evolved and I, I was in a toxic relationship, but I played a role in it. I did this. Those are the people that, that um, have the tendency and the ability to evolve into greatness. But people who think, who are like, this keeps happening and I want to be the change. Well, you got to start with yourself, right? And the way, and the way you start is by, first of all, you got to have one of those come to Jesus talks with yourself and understand why things are always happening to you because there are no realities, just perception. So if you are the type of person that always sees things, it's, it's things happening to you. There's something in the way that you think that, you know, that, that drives that. Cause I mean, I've been, a lot of horrible things have happened to me, right? And at the same time, a lot of horrible things have happened to a lot of people. So to keep the spotlight on myself constantly is not only a bit selfish, it's a little narcissistic because, um, I mean, that's why we have statistics because you're not the only one, right? There ain't no one in 10 million people have been sexually assaulted. (laughs) You know, one in whatever the the population is of everybody in the world, that doesn't exist. So if you take on the perspective of woe is me all the time, then then the the beginning of change has to start with you and, and your perception of things and your acceptance of responsibility and being accountable of the role you play in the things that are happening to you. And that doesn't mean that though people who do bad things to you are not responsible and accountable for that. But you, will you stay there? Will you always be the person that people are doing things to and things are happening to? You, you, you're going to be Michael Douglas and falling down. I mean, you'll always be off and you'll always be like, what, McDonald's is closing at 1030. They close at 1030 every day, dude. They didn't close it at 1030 for you. <laughs> I, I, um, all right, I'm going to take you to rapid fire. I'm going to take you to rapid fire, Rio. I want to hear what comes to your mind. Okay. Are you a good mother or a great mother? I'm a great mother. Because? My children are a reflection of my work, and they are two great human beings. And it's not because they haven't been to jail or they don't do drugs or they graduated from school, but because... They can walk down the street and see a homeless person and look that person in the eye and think about them as a human being. Um, they think about the, themselves in, in connection to the planet and what role they play in it. Um, they are agents of change. They, are, they have made decisions about how they wanna affect the world. And they care about people and animals and they, they care about the world in a, in a way that is not for their benefit, you know, it, it is because that's the way they're supposed to be. And, you know, they're just good human beings. I am everything I am because of them, because I've, I've learned so many things in life from them. They're just good human beings. 
And all the other things are just added pluses. You know, my daughter was the valedictorian when she graduated or, or, or the equivalent of what that is because they don't have valedictorians at her school. But highest GPA of all the students, you know, got money after she graduated from college for being such a great student. Those are all pluses because what does it matter if you do all of that and you're just a horrible person? Interesting. Um, uh, uh, are you a better fighter or a better lover? Ooh, I, I go between the two. <laughs> there are days, <laughs> uh, there are days when I'm a better lover. It depends on uh, where the moon is, I guess. <laughs> you have famously said that all comedy comes from blackness. What do you mean? So, well, I, I believe that art begins in the ghetto. It begins in the hood. It begins in the struggle. Comedy, I mean, the, the mother of comedy is darkness, but if you think about fashion and you think about music and you think about slang, it all starts where the people, the divine people are. And that's, those are the, the, the descendants of the slaves that give us our hurricanes every year. So I think comedy is no exception from that. Um, can white women be great allies? Yes, absolutely they can. If they are willing to sacrifice their privilege for the greater good of the community. Not because they hold up signs at marches, not because they, they believe that Black Lives Matter or they say it, not because um, they can donate money to an organization, not because they have friends who are black or married to black people or their mother of black children, but because they are willing to sacrifice their privilege for the greater good. And that's where, for me, it becomes that conversation because I believe that most white people are inherently racist because they're socializing to being racist, not because they're evil or malicious, but the system in place has always said the reason you're better is because you're white, right? Because that's what they do to you when they're taking advantage of you in the other way. So you're poor, you don't have an education, you live in a trailer park. And the one thing that you can bargain on is that at least you're better than a black person because you're white. Then that's what they that's how you've been trained to believe. And in turn, they've trained people of color to believe that they are to be self-hating and to think that they're less than because that keeps the system in place. So if you want to be a part of the solution, you have to be willing to give up the privilege for your children so that there can be equity for my children. And that's what a real ally is. It's not about talking points. It's not about, you know, proximity to blackness. It's about putting your money where your mouth is and doubling down on that so that we can create balance, so we can balance the floor for everybody. Um, your favorite political leader? My favorite political leader. Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say at this moment, um, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez. Interesting. Yeah, she's fearless. I don't think she's a communist. I think it's interesting that people will call her a communist because she wants uh, free education, or, or we, nothing is really free, but edu accessible education and healthcare, but won't call the other side um, a communist for locking up our mailboxes and um, deploying police that will not read Miranda rights and are kidnapping people. That sounds more like my father's Cuba, my stepfather's from Cuba, than you know accessible healthcare and education, which countries in Europe have been doing for years and are being are successful at it. Um, 
I think that she's going to evolve in great, into greatness. And I think that she doesn't know everything because she's, she's not, she's 30. But I think that at some point she will be a great leader because she is feeling the pulse of the people and that's what she's operating from. She's not operating from, and it's not because I'm Puerto Rican and she's Puerto Rican. I mean, there are a lot of Puerto Rican uh, people in, in politics, you know? The, the governor of Puerto Rico is Puerto Rican and I think he's trash. But um, I think that it has a lot to do with her ideology because oftentimes when, you know, older politicians, you would hear them talk about policies and political issues that didn't include things like the planet, that didn't include things like you know, the thinking about marginalized communities, um, you know, thinking about gay people from a humanity standpoint, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, not about ideologies about religion and what you feel about lifestyles, just looking at them from the perspective of humanity. They are human beings. And whether you agree with what they do, how they feel about the people that they love, has nothing to do with the fact that they should not have to be afraid to live life as human beings. You know, hearing her talk about reparations for Black people in America, um, you know, I just think that she's 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 thinking about progress from a perspective that's humane, and that's been there's been a long time. And you know, when I think about that squad and those women that people think are radical. It's unbelievable to me that it is radical to fight for humanity, to fight for you know the planet, to fight for the rights of the marginalized. It's sad that 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 would trigger somebody's privilege. They don't want to give up what they have to make way for the human beings who are also part of our ecosystem, who pay taxes and work here, and do uh, all uh, things that some people would never do. So. I think that she she talks about a lot of things and I may not agree with everything that she says because I'm an independent thinker and I don't agree with anything that any of the politicians, you know, I don't agree with everything that anyone says. Um, I think she's 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 on her way and to evolving into greatness. Um, I say Beyonce. You say what? I say fire. I say Kamala. You say what? Power. I say LeBron. You say what? King. I say Trump. You say what? Oh, that's what I say. When I I say Trump, I say sad. Sad. Um, capitalize an exclamation point. Yeah, you know, not judgment. Sad. Actual sad. I think hurt people hurt people. His niece shined a light on some of his trauma, and I think that when you see someone that's always trying to prove their worth, is because they don't believe it themselves. So, I mean, we can look at it from a political standpoint. We can look at it from a social standpoint. But if you look at it from a human standpoint, I mean, how sad do you have to be that if somebody triggers you, you're the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, and someone says something you don't like and you spend hours on Twitter throughout the middle of the night because you feel wounded by the words. Like, how vulnerable are you? Imagine if Barack Obama, President Obama, would have done that. He would have lived on Twitter. They were calling him all kinds of things. You have to be so sad that anybody can shake you to your core. You want to er get rid of an app 
because they make fun of you on it. While the trees are burning, a pandemic is happening, people are have lost their jobs, they're losing their homes. We have a homelessness problem that is a pandemic unto itself. And you are worried about Sarah Cooper on TikTok? That's sad. Who would you love to have a meal with, alive or dead? If you could have a meal with anybody, who would you love to have a meal with? Malcolm X. Because I, I'm a I'm a I'm a I, I'm a fan, a supporter. I met his daughter. I met Muhammad Ali, and I spent some time with him. He would be the other person. Um, I think the people that I would love to sit with would be Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali, and Malcolm X. I met Bruce. I met Muhammad Ali. Um, but, and if I had to choose between Malcolm X and Bruce Lee, I would pick Malcolm X first because Malcolm X was um, dealing with us as, uh, as who we are as people of color and, and Bruce Lee was dealing with us as who we are as human beings. But I would definitely love to sit down and have a conversation with Malcolm X. His evolution was amazing. Um, to go after he made Hodge and came back and just to see him evolve and understanding the humanity of people and, and having a global perspective on things because I think that that, that helps. Um, and, you know, one of the greatest orators and some of the best speeches of all time. And I don't think that it's bad for black people and people of color to want to defend themselves. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It is only offensive to you because you're used to being the one to do it to us. But if you, anybody who is well within their right mind and thinking and, and is fair would say, I get it. If I hit you, you're gonna hit me back. And so not that I'm a, an advocate of violence, but I'm an advocate of e equality. And equality means you get it too if you think you can do that to us. And so, Malcolm X is one of the people who spoke that power into me and understanding that I am worth fighting for and there's nothing wrong with that. And that that messaging is something that a lot of us have missed. The best thing about your podcast, Truth Serum. The best thing about my podcast, Truth Serum, is that there is no, um, we're not beholden to sponsors or corporations so people can just authentically be themselves as well as, as myself, and is that I get to pick the people who come be on the show. And um, I've had some really big people in terms of Hollywood and what they think they are. And then I've had some people that nobody knows who they are. And I love the fact that I can give a platform to people who I think their voices deserve to be heard. And the mainstream probably would never do that. Um, your favorite TV show of the moment? I May Destroy You. Um, it's on HBO. It is uh, Michaela Cole, um, a black woman from the UK who created this show about her sexual assault. And she wrote it, she produced it, she stars in it, and she directed nine of the episodes. And I think it's one of the best TV shows on, on television right now. Uh, the music you love. What's, what music do you love? So I love, I'm, I'm a music lover. Like I have records back here. So it goes from Madonna to Prince to Salsa. Um, I love Salsa because it is, it connects me to all of my homes from Puerto Rico, New York, Africa, all of it combined. But it is the music of my mother and my mother's joy. 
So anytime salsa comes on, I can see my mom in her happiest state. Um, I love hip hop, uh, 90s hip hop. I like old school hip hop, not 90s, but old school hip hop. Um, before it was uh, destroyed, but you know, the hip hop that was about building and, <laughs> and you know, like, I remember self-destruction and uh, public enemy. And like, so I love salsa and I love old school hip hop. Um, and last but not least, your favorite dessert. If we were gonna try and thrill you and surprise you one day, what kind of dessert would we bring you? Uh, creme brulee. Um, I love creme brulee. And I had this banana creme brulee. It was banana and coconut creme brulee once. And I, I never saw, I never had it again. I love creme brulee. We're gonna remember that. Uh, uh, Ida, I loved having you on the show. Thank you for giving me some of your time. I really appreciate it. No, keep doing what you're doing. Keep making us look good and um, using your voice for what we need. Is the, A lot of the young men look up, can see a reflection of themselves in you and that's how we move it forward. So thank you for having me. I, uh, I appreciate you saying that and I, uh, I appreciate you being here. And I hope this won't be the last time. Hope you'll come back again. You better come do truth serum is what you better do, but I'll come back anytime. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make you bring some key lime pie with that creme brulee. I'm going to bring the creme brulee, but you got to bring the key lime pie. I was waiting for you to say key lime pie. Key lime pie is, well, you know what? I won't have key lime pie unless I have it in Florida because they don't, nobody, they, it's some, there's something, it's like Cuban bread. There's something in the water. In Florida, right? Yeah. It, where key lime pie tastes gross everywhere else. You know what's so interesting when you say that? There are certain things about that Miami area that you don't see elsewhere. Like, I don't know if you ever watched that show called Ballers about the grass, but there's something about the yes. green grass that they show there. They also had that in Moonlight. There was something yes. about the grass yes. that you have to be from down there to know that it's like a different color kind of almost. It's kind of like when Spike Lee does the heat in New York. Yep. You have to like be from New York to know what he's talking about yeah. in terms of that heat and and what it feels like and how they talk about it and the whole thing. Absolutely. Um, but uh, Miami's yeah. grass is, it has yellow in it. Right, yes. Oh, that's interesting. I guess it does. It has yellow in it where everybody else's grass is super green. There's a lot of yellow yeah. in our grass because of our proximity yeah. to the sun. You should consider uh, teaching. Have you heard about this stuff called Masterclass? Yeah. You should teach one of those. They should have you teach one of those. Somebody else you'd said be, that to me. Real, yeah, you'd be really good at it because you are just, like, you should be, like, on Jeopardy. Because I can tell you have one of those Jeopardy minds. I love Jeopardy. You, you think about everything and you enjoy thinking about everything and putting them all together. And, um, yeah, you would be a good contestant. You'd be a fun contestant. They should rig it and, like, put you on it. So, I love uh, Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, you would be, uh, you'd be great at. Well, um, uh, I'm gonna leave you be. I know, I know it's late, but thank you. I really, I'm, I'm grateful. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you liked this interview, please give us a rating on iTunes.
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 